This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus, episode 669. This week, we welcome Dr. Dave Thorman, Dr. Rima Abre, and Dr. Megan Harris, for part one of a two-part show on the National Academy of Science and Engineering and Medicine report called Why Indoor Chemistry Matters. We will focus on the, what the findings mean to practitioners. Uh, we'll get kind of set the table this week, and then in about three or four weeks, we've got another group coming in where we'll go into a lot more detail on what it means for practitioners, but this report's important for all of us. Before we get started, Let's thank our sponsors. They're the reason we can continue doing the show. And don't forget, after the show, to continue the discussion at afterthoughts.iaqradio.com, sponsored by First On Site. Our marquee sponsor is First On Site at firstonsite.com. Our association sponsors are the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists, ACGIH. The American Industrial Hygiene Association, AIHA.org. The Cleaning Industry Research Institute, CIRIScience.org. The Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification, IICRC.org. Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories, AEMLINC.com. Particles Plus, ParticlesPlus.com. TSI Inc. TSI.com, Sunbelt Rentals, SunbeltRentals.com, April Air, April AIRE.com, Healthy Indoors Magazine, HealthyIndoors.com. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man. Hello, everyone. Congratulations go out to Victor Cafaro, who is listening in Virginia and first to identify Haptins or haptines as the small organic molecules which only stimulate antibody production when combined with a larger molecule. The IHU radio trivia question for today, July 8th, 2022, has been sponsored by TSI Inc., an industry leader in the precision instrumentation for monitoring of indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations at TSI.com. Here's today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Name the collection of unsaturated bicyclic monoterpenes, which form the majority liquid extract of conifers. Back to you, Joe. All right, let's talk a little bit about our guest. Dr. Dave Dorman is the professor of toxicology in the Department of Molecular Biomedical Sciences at North Carolina State University. His research interests include neurotoxicology, nasal toxicology, pharmacokinetics, and cognition and olfaction in animals. Cliff? Dr. Reem Mahavre is an associate professor of environmental health and spatial sciences at University of Southern California, USC. She leads the Exposure Sciences Research Program in the USA National Institute of Environmental Health, P30 Center. Her expertise lies in environmental health air pollution, and exposure sciences. And Dr. Megan Harries is a program officer with the Board on Chemical Sciences and Technology at the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. She is the director of the Committee on Emerging Science on Indoor Chemistry, which authored the recently released report on why indoor chemistry matters. And that's why we're here to talk about why indoor chemistry matters. Let's start with um, Dr. Dorman. And um, maybe we could pull up some slides and give everybody a little overview of what the report includes. So thanks again for the invitation. And I look forward to spending the next hour or so with you and your guests regarding this National Academy's consensus report. I'm Dave Dorman. As Joe mentioned, I'm a professor of toxicology. But in the context of today's podcast, I was the chair of this committee. And so I'm here representing all of my colleagues that put this effort together. 
Before I jump into a few things related to the report, I thought I'd spend just a moment or two talking about the role of the National Academies because not all of your listeners may be familiar with that organization. The National Academies actually dates all the way back to the Civil War era when the charter for the academies was um, written by Abraham Lincoln. And it was designed to provide a way in which governmental agencies could get scientific input into different activities. And so the National Academy serves as an advisor to the national government. It's not a portion of the national government, it's actually an independent entity. And people like myself and Rima and others that serve on committees, we do that pro bono. So next slide, please. So as both Joe and Cliff mentioned, we'll be talking about the indoor chemistry report this report is freely available at the National Academy websites. The links are here available. And there's, um, you can easily download that report and just have a PDF copy at your own leisure. Next slide, please. The link, the link is also in the chat for those that are joining us live. Okay, great. So this report was actually sponsored by three U.S. governmental agencies, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, the National Institutes of Environmental Health Sciences, and the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. In addition to those three sponsors, the report was also sponsored by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation as well. And the committee and National Academies, again, is quite grateful to the role of these sponsors in putting this effort together. Next slide. <clears throat> So if you're at all familiar with consensus reports from National Academy, the place that these always start is a statement of task. And that's really developed through a negotiation between National Academies and the sponsors. And so our committee was charged with a variety of different tasks. And so our committee was asked to consider the state of the art of the science regarding chemicals in indoors and indoor air. And specifically, we were asked to focus on new findings about previously underreported chemical species, reactions, and sources of chemicals, and how they distribute within the indoor environment. And then we were also asked to look more broadly at how the indoor chemistry findings that we identified might fit into linkages between chemical exposure, air quality, and human health. And what's important is that our committee spent time actually discussing what the first charge meant as far as what did new findings mean and what were underreported chemical species. So when you look at the report, what you'll find is most of our discussion relates to science that's emerged over the past decade or so. And there's going to be some familiar chemicals like ozone, for example, gets discussed at length within the report. So it doesn't necessarily represent an underreported chemical per se, but what we tried to do is highlight new findings that have emerged, like I said, over the past 10 years or so. Next slide. So we were actually charged with even a broader statement of task. And so in addition to those two elements, we were asked to look at implications of the scientific research in indoor chemistry. And we were asked to try to look at potential near-term opportunities for how that information could be incorporated into practice. We were also asked to look at where additional research in indoor chemistry might improve our understanding of the composition of indoor air and potential adverse exposures that occur with occupants of different buildings. We were asked to look at potential technological barriers and how cooperation and coordination of different activities might actually advance the field of indoor air chemistry. We eventually were asked to provide recommendations for how to communicate our findings to affected stakeholders. And actually this podcast, as well as other briefings that we've had is one of the ways the committee is trying to really expand knowledge about this report. And finally, we were asked to focus our activities on non-industrial exposures within buildings. So within the context of this report, we considered residential buildings, schools, hospitals, and other non-industrial buildings. Next slide, please. So as I mentioned, I had an opportunity to be the chair. This is the rest of our committee. Megan Harries um, served as the project coordinator for National Academies. My fellow committee members, we were drawn from a variety of different places, including academia, governmental agencies, and non 
nonprofit organizations as well. The expertise represented by these scientists is actually quite broad and includes both chemistry, atmospheric chemistry, indoor chemistry, engineering, um, toxicology, environmental health, and other scientific disciplines. So we were quite a multidisciplinary group of scientists that were charged with these activities. Next slide, please. So this report is, if you do download it from the National Academy website, you're going to find that the report is several hundred pages long. And obviously in the 15 to 20 minutes or so that I wanna provide this overview, I'm not going to be able to go into all of the details. But what I will do is spend a few moments talking about the overall structure of the report to give your listeners a chance to understand what they may find when they actually download the report and some of our really key critical messages. Next slide. So the way the report has been structured is it's broken down into individual chapters. So for example, we have an introductory chapter that basically sets the stage for the task at hand and redefines the statement of task. And then right after that introductory chapter, we really delve into the science. And so in the first chapter of the report, we focus in on primary sources and reservoirs of chemicals indoors. We then follow that chapter up with one where we're looking at partitioning of chemicals within the indoor environments. How do chemicals partition from the air into surfaces and other types of phases within the indoor environment? The third chapter of the report largely focuses on chemical transformation. So what types of reactions and byproducts are commonly seen within doors? Chapter five actually delves with management of chemicals in the indoor environments. We talk a little bit about mitigation strategies. Our sixth chapter looks at the linkages between indoor chemistry and exposure to humans. And then finally, the last chapter actually puts together a path forward for indoor chemistry. Here's where cross-cutting um, issues are being discussed by the committee. And we also lay out potential research that might be able to be performed over the next several years that would advance the science. Each individual chapter provides an overview of the current state of the science and the research needs. And just because of the limitations of time, I'll largely focus in on our last chapter, which describes the path forward. And so one of the really key messages, which won't come as a surprise to your listeners, is that environmental conditions and indoor chemistry actually varies tremendously from building to building, depending upon the build of the building, their purpose and use. So for example, the chemistry that might be found in a hospital setting can be quite a bit different than that found in a residential setting. Irrespective of the way in which buildings get used, the indoor chemistry is actually very complex in which people get exposed to a multitude of different chemicals on a day-to-day -day basis. And most of us do spend most of our time indoors. And so these indoor exposures are actually quite critical. So unfortunately, researchers really know very little at times about these different chemicals that are found indoors. Sometimes the identity of the chemicals themselves is actually not known. We also have an incomplete knowledge of how chemicals interact with each other and undergo transformations, as well as the ways in which chemicals can move from phase to phase. And then ultimately, not only do we have to worry about how these phase chemistries occur, but how do they change over time? And then importantly, when we start to think about people in the built environment, how do these indoor exposures potentially affect human health? The other thing we have to recognize is we're in, a, in an increasingly changing world. Obviously, we have things like climate change, which is going to change the way we use buildings or perform ventilation and do other types of activities. And so climate change can have impacts on indoor chemistry. The increasing numbers of brush and wildfires can impact indoor chemistry by changing the quality of outdoor air. And increasing urbanization can also have some significant impacts on the indoor environment. So our committee does spend some time discussing these changes that will be occurring over time. One of the key things that's really led to an improved understanding of indoor chemistry has been the development of a variety of different types of analytical chemical techniques that have been implied and applied to this research environment. And although these tools have been quite helpful over the past 10 years, there's some critical needs for some ongoing strategic investments in developing even newer generation sensors 
in analytical tools that can be used. So science by itself can be beneficial, obviously, but science that's been translated into practice really becomes so much more important. And so it's important for us to think of ways in which the science of indoor chemistry can go into practice and making informed decisions about policy. As I mentioned before, many of the chemicals we find indoors has very little information regarding their toxicity to humans. And going beyond that problem, our exposures are actually to combinations of different chemicals. So how chemical A and chemical B, for example, might interact and adversely affect humans is also a poorly understood subject as well. And it's deserving of additional research effort in the future. Mitigating hazards is going to depend a lot on building design and operation. It's going to oftentimes depend upon what types of products and materials are brought into the built environment. But then another feature as well is human activity and human activity on that indoor environment as well. And so we need to have more research understanding how do we as people interact with our indoor environments? How do we contribute to indoor chemistry? And how do we respond to information about indoor chemistry becomes critically important as well. And so our overall committee recommendations that are found in the last chapter really center in on several different key features. One, this complexity of the chemicals in the indoor environment is a main focus of our report. We spend some time discussing indoor chemistry in a changing world. We do put a lot of effort into discussing what types of investments will be needed in research. And then finally, we look at it's the importance of communicating both science and risks to policymakers, general public, and other stakeholders as well. And this opportunity to actually talk about the report represents an important way in which we can try to communicate the key findings of this report to not just your audience, but others as well. And so in closing, I think all of our committee members feel quite proud of this effort. Um, I was quite honored to lead it. And we provide an important summary of really the state of the science of indoor chemistry as a, at this moment in time. And we also provide a roadmap with respect to a research agenda, which we think if federal agencies and other funding agencies follow, will actually advance this area of science known as indoor chemistry. And there's a need for this advancement to actually occur in a multidisciplinary way so that scientists with an interest in engineering, chemistry, toxicology, environmental health, and others are actually working collaboratively to solve some of these problems and then translate that science into practice. So thanks for the opportunity for giving you a quick overview of the report and Rima, Megan, and I will be more than happy to answer questions that you and your audience have. All right. Thank you, Dr. Dorman. Let's, let's start with the first uh, chapter, the primary sources and reservoirs of chemical in, chemicals indoors. And uh, maybe, Dr. Aubrey, you can, Aubrey, you can um, tell us what are unexpected or underappreciated sources that are discussed in the report? Well, thank you, Joe and Kiff, for having us, first of all. It's great to be with you all. Um, in this first chapter, we give a large overview of sort of common sources, but I would say what most people we find probably underappreciate is the importance of dust. We call it a reservoir of chemicals, meaning it can release and absorb chemicals depending on different conditions. We've actually noted in the report that sometimes when you measure things in dust, it gives you a really good idea of what occupants could be exposed to in their personal exposure zone across different pathways. So you don't just have to get in contact with the dust. You know, it also represents what's in the air a lot of the time and what people are breathing and what they're getting through their skin, etc. So I would say, you know, dust is a very important compartment that we often perhaps don't focus on as much as air or kind of airborne contaminants. Um, there's quite a bit in the report that I'd really love for people to read, but we also you know, talk about recognizing some new chemicals that are found that say in flame retardants or newer mixtures of flame retardants um, that have been found in dust and in indoor spaces that are also associated 
you know, with neurological effects, with developmental effects, with various health effects uh, in kids and in, in occupants. And so, you know, the variety of chemicals in dust can be very huge, obviously, um, but dust as a compartment itself, but also the different chemicals in it, um, I'd say are some of the more, you know, emerging contaminants, as long as also with cleaning products, with sort of some cooking related chemicals chemicals and so on well when you when you said dust i know one of our old uh guests carl grimes ears perked up because uh they've done a lot of work at, at hayward healthy homes and um hayward score and that is the one area they they have this large database of homes and questionnaires they've done with people who are in homes and what types of issues they have in their homes and then they tried to correlate that with health effects. And really the one thing that most commonly correlated with health effects was the presence of dust and, and, and more dust than people were expecting or were hoping for in their homes. So I found that very interesting. The second part was that you mentioned the flame retardants. I also recall reading somewhere in my prep for the show that it wasn't just the new flame retardants, but we still have old flame retardants showing up in these uh, in, in these chemical inventories. Exactly. A lot of the time, you know, when we recycle old materials, some of these chemicals are still present in them and they get reintroduced perhaps unintentionally, but they do persist for a long time, you know, in the indoor environment and in human bodies. We measure them actually in biospecimens and can relate them to health effects. So I was just going to, maybe just throw out a couple other things too, because this is such a critical issue about dust exposures are, are especially important for children as well, because they're, they can have exposures through inhalation as well as oral exposures and dermal. And so that's a, that's a major concern. And then going back to what Rima was saying, our report also discusses health disparities. And so for example, cer certain communities, for example, may have even higher exposure to legacy chemicals like some of the older flame retardants just because of the way their building stock is, or they don't have the opportunity to change over different types of materials that are found within their home. So that's also a consideration that exists within our report. Sorry, Joe. And go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, and Dr. Harris, you, you're kind of new to this. Um, you were brought in after the report had started, as I understand it. And But you're not new to chemistry. You, you've got a great background in chemistry. I'm, I'm curious, what stood out to you in that first chapter? Thanks so much for having us. I am. I learned so much about indoor chemistry from working on this study with this fabulous committee of experts um, that was very interdisciplinary. I I was surprised by how important humans and human activities are as sources in the indoor environment, um, especially as uh, Rima and Dave both mentioned, um, cooking and, and the chemicals that, that humans bring indoors. So that was um, something that I, I'm interested to hear, you know, um, how, how IEPs and practitioners think about, about humans when they think about the work that you all do. I've got a great question from uh, our audience, and, and this is something that we run into all the time. What is your opinion of concentration limits currently in use to judge VOC levels in indoor air? Anybody want to take that one on? Joe, I can try. And of course, um, Dave, please chime in. If not, I'm trying to read the rest of it, though. All right. These include guidelines for acceptable health risk, um, the California CRELs and acceptable levels for classification as a LEED building. That's a big one now. Everybody's trying to get their LEED certification, and there's a VOC criteria there. And his review of the criteria found no support of data based on actual health effects. So I would say the big issue, and so we do discuss in chapter seven of the report, sort of our thoughts as a committee on how to approach thinking about perhaps guidelines or certification standards, or even regulations for indoor air. And it's very complicated, of course, but I, you know, I would respectfully disagree that we do see health effects 
uh, for indoor VOCs and for indoor you know, other contaminants. The challenge has been our ability to measure realistic concentrations in actual kind of diverse settings in people's homes across different ranges of socioeconomic status, let's say, or different geographies, et cetera. To re- and not only to measure these chemicals, but also to measure at the same time certain health effects to establish more of those, what we call those response relationships or kind of risk thresholds. So I think there's quite a bit of evidence on sort of toxicity or risk thresholds for a lot of these chemicals. But the challenge has been that most of the time doing these kinds of studies is either either expensive or very challenging kind of operationally to do it at a large scale. So most of the time we're sort of, you know, relying on a a few studies or perhaps more kind of controlled settings to make those determinations. The other challenge with VOCs, as you all are experts and, and know, of course, is you know, measuring it properly and capturing it. So if you're measuring aerosols sometimes or dust, a lot of those semi-volatiles could have off-gassed or could have been lost before we can even capture them. Um, I don't know that I'm an expert in all these specific guidelines that were mentioned, you know, to give more detail, but I do highly recommend reading the final chapter where we talk about sort of a different approach to think about indoor air and indoor exposures and health risks when you were trying to set standards or certifications. Well, another challenge we're faced with is that VOCs is not a homogeneous chemical. It's a, it's a range of different types of chemicals that can have variable toxicity and exposure information. And so that also becomes a problem. And then we're exposed to this mixture and the whole issue of how we regulate or try to to develop guidelines for mixture exposures, that can be challenging as well. And so I think, again, like Rima said, I'm not as familiar with this California standard, but I am more broadly familiar with other VOC standards. And so, you know, when we're looking at how do we develop criteria for an individual chemical, that can be very different when we're trying to look at like the composite picture of say several different VOCs within a building. I guess do you also address somewhere maybe Dr. Dorman you can you can answer this one um, the difference between measuring for VOCs for let's say uh, lead credit where there's no one in the building etc and the actual exposure assessment um, what people are actually breathing or inhaling or ingesting um, those are two different things aren't they. They can be. I mean, a challenge that we're always faced with is trying to estimate what are human exposures. And so we don't always have a great picture of the time activity of the person in a building. We oftentimes really don't address susceptible subpopulations, like what's an exposure for, say, a child or an asthmatic. And so in many ways, these standards and approaches are based upon what I'll call a typical human which in EPA parlance is oftentimes a 70 kilogram person, for example, with certain respiratory rates. So that it's you know, a very complex and, and challenging things, but what we do typically try to do is incorporate safety factors that will cover different types of subpopulations as well when we're developing these guidelines. And I've got another question from the audience. When we, when we talk about cooking, are we talking about the, the smoke and particulate that comes from the cooking or from the, the gas or propane or both? Both. Really all the contributions that can occur from smoke, you know, from cooking and, you know, really need, do need to be considered when you're looking at indoor chemistry. So not just okay. the combustion products from cooking itself, but, you know, what your source of heat is when you were doing the heating, do you have a, ventilation system going on? Are you running exhaust fans, things like that? So it's, a, it's really cooking in the most broad sense. And I, I think that's an important distinction because, you know, there's a movement to electrify everything, at least, uh, you know, a lot of people in the HVAC industry and others feel like we should electrify, for instance, cooking, but that doesn't necessarily eliminate all the potential exposures. Right, and it's even more complicated. The type of food that you're cooking can change the chemistry as well. So, for example, frying foods versus 
other types of, and the food itself can be quite variable too. So it's, a, it's another one of these very challenging conundrums. Cliff, you got a follow-up question? Yeah, I, I, I do. It's partly an observation and it's, it's partly a question. I think one of the things that's changed over the course of my life, I mean, I'm 72, so I've seen a lot of things happen. And, you know, one of the things that happened was this concern about the ozone layer. And, you know, we ended up banning a bunch of uh, chemicals, uh, you know, to uh, make you know, the environment uh, a little bit better. So we, we had this 30,000, you know, we were worried about the stratosphere, and the ozone layer. And then the view changes, then we're worried about the forest. And then we're getting closer, we're worried about the tree because we're barking in our faces. We keep looking closer and closer and closer. And all these things that we look at tend to be one generation. And I remember as a chemical formulator, you know, well, we wanted to get away from these chlorinated solvents and we wanted to use natural things like the limonene and uh, terpenes and, and so on and so forth. And no one thought about what was going to happen in terms of interaction once we put these in, inside of a building. And I think in certain situations, some of the things we're doing now with products that are supposedly naturally derived may be worse than what we were doing before. So, uh, you know, it's it, it keeps changing. We keep looking closer and closer. And the closer we look, the more we find. And I think the more things change as well with the findings. Back to you, Jeff. All right. Thank you, Cliff. Hey, we've got to stop and thank our sponsors for halftime. We'll be right back with our guests. We've got Dr. Dorman, Dr. Habre, and Dr. Harris. Our marquee sponsor is First On Site, your trusted, full-service disaster recovery and property restoration company at firstonsite.com. Association sponsors are ACGIH, Advancing Careers of Professionals in Environmental Health, Industrial Hygiene, and Safety, Interested in Defining Their Science, ACGIH.org, AIHA, Healthy Workplaces, A Healthier World, AIHA.org, The Cleaning Industry Research Institute, See More Deeply Through Science and Research, CIRI science.org. The IICRC, a nonprofit standards development and certifying body for the cleaning and restoration industry, IICRC.org. Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories, free shipping, great pricing, same day results with no rush fee, AEMLINC.com. Particles Plus, Feature-rich particle counters and air quality instrumentation. Count on us. Particlesplus.com. TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations. TSI.com. Sunbelt Rentals. Availability, reliability, and ease for all your IAQ and restoration needs at sunbeltrentals.com. April Air, healthy air, healthy home, April, A-I-R-E.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online magazine for industry professionals and consumers, healthyindoors.com. All right, let's start the second half with a comment from our audience. Perhaps my grandparents had an innovative idea with the kitchen in a separate building from the living space. So that, that's an interesting comment, uh, and uh, I think that's a good one. Now, let's finish up Chapter 1 real quick here because I, I know we're going to run out of time, but we've got a second show for those of you that – are wondering about that. We're definitely going to do a follow-up show on this. So if we don't get to all the chapters, then we'll do it in the second show. But with respect to primary sources and reservoirs of chemical indoor chemicals indoors, what kind of future research in this area will help us better do a better job creating and maintaining healthy indoor environments? Maybe uh, Dr. Uh, Dorman, start with you, and then maybe Dr. Harris can join us after that. So one thing the report points out is that for you know the general public, when you purchase, say, a consumer product and bring it home and you read a label, we, we don't always know what chemicals are actually found in all consumer products. Some of that is proprietary information. Some of it just doesn't have to be disclosed. And so one of the things the report discusses is the challenges we have about identifying 
these different chemicals that are being brought into that indoor environment because of this kind of lack of labeling information. Um, you know, as I mentioned before in the overview, the analytical instrumentation becomes really important too, like trying to understand just what chemicals are there. So in, in many ways, this is an analytical chemistry driven question as well, as far as chapter one is concerned, as far as trying to identify sources and, and really the reservoirs depends heavily on our ability to do that. And so having real-time monitoring is important. And then maybe a third thing, and then I'll let Megan take a crack at it too, is the need for doing these types of studies in so-called real world environments. And so mm -hmm. having, lab, you know, hit, doing it in a laboratory is one thing, but doing it in an actual home environment or doing it in a school environment or a hospital environment or others becomes critically important too. Megan? Excellent. Yeah, I totally agree with, with uh, your, um, your points, Dave, and especially on the, your point about real-time monitoring. Something that this chapter talks about in detail is how uh, new analytical tools are for kind of the first time enabling us to look at a time-resolved picture of sources and reservoirs. And that's really key when you your ultimate goal is is to understand human exposure and health effects because um, exposure is a, is a is is a factor of, of time in in the environment with the source and so um, we need more research uh, like this and it's it's just become possible now with with new tools um, but to to go into real environments and make these time resolved measurements is is I think really key for future research. Well, you, you hit on something that um, has been a discussion. I'm in a email chat room with a bunch of practitioners, and one of them is trying to figure out if there's a problem with formaldehyde off-gassing in someone's home and the complexities of trying to measure the off-gassing from different furnishings, floorings, et cetera, in that home it was a lot more complex than I had realized. Um, and sometimes it's tough for practitioners to sort out what the best technology or the best technique is for helping their clients. So I, I think it's great that we're going to have more information on that coming down the road. Uh, but let's move over to the next chapter. Is the, This is very interesting. The partitioning of chemicals in indoor environments. This has become a uh, a topic that's getting a lot more closely looked at here recently than it had been in the fact. First, maybe one of you, uh, maybe Dr. Harries, you could tell us a little bit about what is this partitioning and why is it so important when it comes to chemicals in indoor environments? Yes, I'm so glad you you picked me for this question because my my background in chemistry before the academy is studied partitioning, and this is the part of the report that I. I feel the most comfortable talking about, but um, partitioning is is really really important because it ultimately affects the um, you know what phase a, a certain chemical contaminant is in, and that affects the route of exposure for a person. So if you know using your example, Joe, in a new building, some materials are off gassing formaldehyde or other VOCs into the environment, those chemicals can then partition between the compartments and doors. So they might go and partition to surfaces like window glass or walls or carpeting, or they might partition into uh, the dust phase. And if a chemical is on a surface, then your potential for a dermal exposure is increased. If a chemical is in dust, then your potential for ingestion is increased. And if it's in the air phase, then your potential for inhalation exposure is increased. The other thing that partitioning is really important for um, when you're thinking about indoor chemistry is the timescales that are involved uh, because chemicals that partition to, to surfaces or dust can then have a much more, much longer lifetime in the indoor environment. And, and they're harder for management approaches to get to as well. If you're talking about things like ventilation or filtration. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And, and, what with respect to partitioning, um, what kind of surprise uh, anybody maybe, maybe uh, uh, one of you could comment on what kind of surprised you when you looked at the different types of partitioning taking place in the real world? 
Um, and what's something that maybe our audience that is primarily people who do indoor environmental consulting or they do restoration, what can they learn from this? I'll, I'll take maybe a quick crack at it that surprised me in some ways is when you consider air cleaning technologies like filtration or ventilation or others, if you end up turning those systems off and we have a significant amount of chemicals that are existing, say, on surfaces, those, those surface chemicals then can re-volatilize and go back into the air. And so in many ways, as Megan mentioned, it can be harder to mitigate chemicals that partition into these different phases. And so I think one thing that we do need to consider is when do we have a clean environment with respect to this equilibrium that occurs between a chemical in, say, a surface and the chemical in the air itself, since much of our technologies are driven to trying to clean the air. And when we're called in for remediation of, of indoor environments, a lot of times it's not, so if it's formaldehyde, a lot of times it might be ventilate the area, okay? But you don't really think about, okay, did the dust maybe accumulate some of this formaldehyde as well? So that's, Dr. Aubrey, would you like to comment on that? Sure. I mean, and that's exactly the point Dave made that I wanted to also reiterate is that what was surprising to me is a lot of the time we think we removed chemicals from the air, from, you know, surfaces, etc. But as soon as you stop, things just get re-emitted and become an exposure again. You know, I think with dust, I mean, it, it, so another surprising thing with dust, other than it's kind of hard to contain and completely eliminate dust, and hopefully you try to avoid it in the first place, but even when dust settles inside HVAC systems in the ducts and sort of these invisible spaces and attic spaces, crawl spaces um, that you guys all are experts in kind of thinking about, that dust also is kind of a, a reservoir or stores a lot of these chemicals. And so you might think you've cleaned out kind of visible spaces and then just get re-emissions from these, you know, hidden spaces from what's in the dust, whether that's, you know, on the coils and your HVAC settled in your ducts, etc. Another question I had on this whole partitioning topic was um, what other variables affect partitioning that maybe we could control better in indoor environments? So for instance, is relative humidity an issue with partitioning? Is heat and cold uh, an, an issue? Dr. Aubrey, it looks like you could, you, you, uh, you have something to say on this one. I'd say Megan is the actual expert here, but I, okay. I, mean, I think you listed all of them, right? All these factors are the ones, the main ones that govern partitioning behavior, right? Heat, temperature, humidity. The thing we try to emphasize in the report is that we always have to think in relative terms. So for example, if you're in LA versus in you know, Boston or Florida, the level of, let's say, dehumidification or humidification or cooling or heating could be different. And it's all relative to also what's happening right outside the home, right? So it's still hard for us to say kind of what's that good optimal zone uh, of a clean indoor space, right? But it's, it's all these factors that we try to kind of shed light on that matter to think about, yeah. What's kind of interesting is we, we have a good idea of what the target for mold and microbial growth, you know, um, and, and I'm wondering if there's any uh, correlation or any, is that going to also help us with chemicals in the indoor environment? Maybe, uh, Megan, maybe you can help us with that. Does it, it, does it match? Let's put it that way. I mean, if we keep our relative humidity below 60, I prefer below 50 to keep the dust mites down. Is that also good for chemical emissions? Well, it's it's good for um, for limiting the types of chemistry that water is involved in. So, you know, water promotes microbial growth, but it can also promote uh, hydrolysis reactions. If you have water films or standing water, you can have chemistry happening. That's also a reservoir indoors, and so uh, limiting that certainly affects affects the chemistry. Okay, what about heat and, and cold temperature? Where, where's the sweet spot on temperature to try and limit this partitioning if we know of one? That's a great question. The report doesn't, doesn't really um, 
it points to a need for more information on something like that. And Remo was hitting on something important, which is the variability among buildings. And that's where I think practitioners are really key. You know, you guys are the ones who are going into these spaces and um, helping uh, talk to people about what they can do to uh, affect partitioning. Like Rima mentioned, you know, when dust accumulates in an HVAC system, that can be a source or a reservoir. Um, you all are the, are the ones who can help uh, the public uh, understand the importance of changing your air filter or understand the importance of using your vent hood or keeping your humidity managed and, and what occupant behaviors are, are key. That's a, a real theme in the report and something that's currently, you know, we're not doing a, a very good job at translating what we know from the research world into practice. And with respect to this chapter, what are the research recommendations? Dr. Dorman? Well, so again, having a improved understanding of the fate of chemicals within the indoor environment with respect to partitioning is going to be driven by analytical chemistry. As I mentioned before, the need for doing real-world investigations, that's also a critical research need as well. And I, I think I want to go back to the earlier question. He wanted to clarify his previous question. He could not find any toxicological or epidemiological studies based on human exposure, establishing threshold, thresholds of concern for VOCs at the level specified by the IAQ standards. Is he missing something or is there something that he should be somewhere else he should be looking? Who wants to tackle that one? And I, I did look at that comment that's in the chat. And I've got to say, I mean, that that's a pretty complicated question that I don't think I'd be able to, to really look at without trying to look at the evidence that your viewer is, is talking about. I mean, it's not a topic we talk about directly in the report. So I'm not sure we can handle this one during the time we've got. Understood. All right, let's go to what we call our roundup, folks. The Roundup is brought to you by April Air, providing healthy humidity, ventilation, and air purity solutions for new and existing homes. April Air, healthy air, healthy home at aprilaire.com. All right, I'd kind of like to use the Roundup to tease the next show a little bit, but also to ask a few important questions. One is on this chapter on chemical transformations and management of chemicals in indoor environments, which I expect we'll be spending a lot of time on in part two. As you know, our our, rest, our, our audiences, restoration contractors, HVAC contractors, and, and they're commonly pitched on things like ozone, hydroxyls, titanium dioxide. Um, what's kind of the takeaway from this chapter for practitioners? Let's start with Dr. Habre. That's such a great question, Joe. I think um, we, you know, we made a great point in the report about the fact that there's a lot of hype sometimes and a lot of sort of, um, you know, unsubstantiated claims about a lot of the newer kind of air cleaning technologies, but even some of the devices or sensors that we might use to measure indoor air quality. So I think the kind of the cautionary message that we put into the report is you know, unless there's substantial evidence that this new kind of um, removal mechanism leads to less harm, you know, it would be nice to see that kind of evidence before using it. In general, we talk about filtration, um, ventilation, and sorption, like activated carbon being sort of the tried and true methods that really have no downside, you know, if you implement them properly. But we caution against methods where you might introduce some new chemical or kind of induce chemistry on purpose to remove some things because there's great potential for other things forming that we don't really understand, you know, what they do or how toxic they could be. Most of the time when you're inducing chemistry, you're leading to more, you know, reactive products, more oxid oxidated products, etc. So we just have a lot of kind of cautionary words in the report around this, um, especially because there's so much hype sort of around these devices. Understood. So they're not, not well researched at this point. Dr. Dorman, anything you'd like to add on that? Well, I think also we don't always know the efficacy and safety of some of these 
air cleaning technologies, as Rima mentioned, I mean, that there's this is an oftentimes unregulated space. So the committee also discusses that as the science is emerging over the next, say, five to 10 years regarding some of these technologies, there may be a need for developing guidelines or standards in the future. So I think that's a critical thing that our report also touches on. And another area that these machines and this equipment is commonly marketed for is odor removal. Who's my odor expert here? Uh, Dr. Habre, you're, you're shaking your head. Uh, what I don't do know that I'm an odor expert. I mean, I think, again, like things like activated carbon, and I do encourage you guys to ask these questions in our next episode, because that's where you'll have the real experts. Um, but, you know, the activated carbon filtration, these things all do help with odor removal. It's just that as soon as you stop perhaps using these technologies, these things might come back. So we, you know, you have to think about all these kind of sources and reservoirs together. Um, I think there was a comment in the chat that I was trying to get to. Um, the other important thing to note is, for example, ozone cleaning for CPAP machines. It's different when you're using some cleaning technology inside a room actively when people are there continuously emitting things in air and kind of, you know, all around versus some isolated kind of cleaning exercise, right? So it's important to think where are the humans? How close are they to these devices? Or how much time are they spending in these rooms? Uh, you know, especially if you have a toddler at home or a pregnant woman or an elderly person who has asthma or like COPD or other conditions. Um, it's hard to kind of generalized sometimes because we, you know, there's this variability in all these different situations where things could be more of a concern than we might appreciate. And a theme, that, a theme that does occur within the report multiple times is that when you're doing additive chemistry is something we should generally avoid unless, like Rima said, the benefits associated with it outweigh the potential risks. And unfortunately, we can't always predict what the risks are because we don't always understand the transformation products that this chemistry might be developing. So I think that's that's another take-home message for everyone. I think we got a call. And yet there is substantial anecdotal evidence some of these devices do provide benefits. It's possible the benefits are real, but the science just hasn't identified those elements. Is that possible? Sure. That's always possible. That's where we need the science. Always possible. All right. And I, I, we deal a lot with microbial issues. Um, you know, microbes do, there are chemicals that are a part of the microbial world. I'm wondering, is that discussed anywhere in the document? And where is it? I, I didn't see it. And if not, is that something that you're looking at down the road? So that was something we discussed heavily at the earliest stages of our committee. What was this kind of the breadth and scope? And so the issues related to, for example, microbiome was covered within the National Academies a few years ago. Um, issues related, for example, to wildfire we saw as a little bit out of scope just because as Megan may have mentioned during the podcast, there's an ongoing committee activity looking at that. As far as predicting where do we go in the future, that's, you know, the, I mean, I've been working with academies for honestly decades now. So in many ways, if there's follow-ups, that gets driven oftentimes by the sponsors. So organizations like CDC, EPA, and others that may have an interest in doing a follow-up studies with academies, say looking again at you know microbial activity within the air. So that's that's always hard for us to predict as committee members. I'm also wondering how microbial activity and moisture affect off-gassing of products within homes. So if, you know drywall, wood, uh, flooring, all these things, when they get wet, they start to get mold growth. Um, there's also off-gassing that occurs, not the microbial off-gassing, which does occur as well, but it increases the potential for off-gassing from, say, let's say formaldehyde, et cetera. Was that touched on at all? Well, it, it also gets touched on back to the chapter that we talked earlier about partitioning. So for example, we can have both aqueous phases on surfaces and organic phases. And so depending upon the chemistry, you can have different chemicals, for example, partition more readily into an aqueous phase. Some are partitioning 
more readily, for example, if it's lipophilic into a into an organic type of phase. So the moisture content can impact partitioning. And it also impacts, again, like Rima and, and Megan said, the hydrolysis reactions that can occur within the indoor environment as well. Okay, we, we didn't get a chance to, to go into all the chapters here. We didn't talk much about chemical transformations, a little bit. Um, indoor chemistry and exposure, I think, is one we missed a good bit. But before we wrap things up, the, the question that I always come to on these shows is, can future recommendations somehow include collaboration with industry environmental professionals, restoration contractors, general contractors, they need to know what's going on here. And what are the plans to help pull those folks into future work? Um, maybe include them in some of the future research. And maybe, um, Dr. Harris, you could talk to us about that a little bit. Yeah, this is a, a really, really good question, Joe. And um, one that I, I might turn back a little bit on this group today, um, that's a need that's identified in the report. And the, the committee wasn't constituted to find the answer to that question, but they repeatedly identified, you know, the need for this multi-sector collaboration to solve some of these problems. Like I mentioned earlier, um, practitioners are the ones who are in these real-world environments every day and have have access to to collect data that academics don't have access to. So I think there's a real opportunity to do that. The question of how is is a really good question and one we don't have the answer to. We'd, you know, love to, to talk about it. Well, we'll continue the discussion and see if we can't help out in that respect. Uh, before we go, I want to make sure we get a chance for all three of you to add anything that we missed or give us some final comments. Let's start with Dr. Dorman. No, just, you know, Joe and Cliff, thanks again for the opportunity. And I, I would just encourage your listeners to download the report and peruse it. It's freely available and, you know, represents quite a bit of effort on the part of the committee and national academies to put that report together. And again, just wanted to give a nod to our sponsors with respect to that report and, Again, thank the four agencies that were involved with, with funding that activity. Thank you. Absolutely. And Dr. Aubrey? I want to thank you again for this opportunity. It's great to be with you all. Um, I would just add kind of my, what I always think of is a lot of the time we see a lot of data and evidence from outdoor air quality studies and the indoor environment is so important as we all appreciate, right? So I would just kind of advise us as a community to really try to think together and sort of avoid always comparing to outdoor levels because what happens indoors can be so, so different and way more complex. And so it matters for all of our health, of course. Thank That's you. A great comment. I, I, I remember now another of your colleagues out there, Delphine Farmer, we had her on the show not long ago. I, I was looking through the list of the contributors and I'll bet we've had six of them. And now I can see six more I need to get, but uh, let's wrap it up with uh, Dr. Harris. Let you get your final word in please. Thanks Joe. Uh, yes. Thank you so much for having us. And I do really want to um, not let that last question you asked get lost about, you know, how do we involve practitioners and in moving forward. One of the questions the committee deliberated on is, you know, whose responsibility is this problem? There's so many different sectors and disciplines that need to be involved. And so um, thank you all so much for, for tuning in and please do join uh, the podcast. I think it's April or excuse me, August 12th is part two. I think that'll be a yes. great one. That would be excellent. We're looking forward to it. Uh, and I want to thank all three of you for your time and, and your efforts on the project. I know volunteering can be uh, uh, can be a job of its own. So uh, we appreciate your work on this. And uh, we look forward to hopefully talking to you again and look forward to part two. Before we go, I want to thank Dr. Dorman, Dr. Habre, and Dr. Harris, my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. John, you got to have faith at the controls. Most importantly, our fantastic sponsors and our loyal audience. Next week, we're going to delve into the whole ozone and uh, hydroxyl radical thing in a lot more detail. We've got Dr. Charlie Weschler joining us next week and uh, looking forward to a great discussion with him. So please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next episode of 
IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Rio saying thanks for listening. 